Grab a Bible, open up to Luke. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but once upon a time, we were going through Luke together. We, we spent, in fact, most of last year in uh, the first seven chapters of Luke, and then we took a break to resume uh, a series in David's life or in, in uh, 2 Samuel, and, and we spent all fall doing that, and we took another break to celebrate the Advent season together, and now it's, uh, you know, not quite the new year, but we're close enough, and we'll be back in Luke together um, for the foreseeable future, and man, I love soaking in the Gospels. Um, I love just reading the story of Jesus and seeing even the differences between the way the, the four evangelists um, tell us the story of Jesus, and it's just a good time. So uh, again, um, these are going to be stories about Jesus and how good the kingdom of God is. If you know anybody who would benefit from knowing how great Jesus is and how wonderful it is in the kingdom of, of, of heaven, now's the time to invite them. I've been thinking uh, while I was studying this strange little passage. Luke will do this. You know, Luke has these little connector sections that it's tempting to just blow right by. This like, and then Jesus went around preaching. And it's tempting to go, yeah, 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 we know Jesus went around preaching. Let's, let's skip and move on to something else. But Luke is such a skillful writer that he's, he doesn't waste these transition sections. And so our passage today is short, just three verses and not a lot of action. Like this is very much just a little brief exposition. And yet there's a lot of meat on those bones for us to chew on today. So I thought, let's just take these first three verses in Luke 8 and, and think about them together. But as I was doing that, my mind kept going back to, to the parable of the great net in, in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 has several parables all about the kingdom of God. And it ends with this weird, quirky parable about the kingdom of God being like a big net. And all the fishermen standing around are like, nets, we got this. We know exactly what you're talking about. We've seen that before. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this net and the fishermen drag it up on the shore. I might be adding on the shore. I don't have it memorized. And there's all kinds of fish in this net. And some are clean and some are unclean. And you got to separate them out. And the parable is about judgment. The parable is about how the unclean fish, while they'll be harvested with the clean fish, they're going to be set to the fire. They're going to be you know, eternally judged while the clean fish have a higher purpose. And yet there's a there's a part of this parable that's always kind of made me giggle. And I don't know if it's the main idea of the parable, but I just want to think about how weird it is to be a fish in this big net. How the impact, the effects of fishy society on all being in this one net that is the kingdom of God. The net ends whatever power struggles there were. There might have existed a little fishy hierarchy in the lake. And it might have been based on, I don't know what impresses fish. It might have been based on size. It might have been based on speed, who can get to the smaller fish first. Maybe it's based on how handsome a fish you are. I don't know. Maybe it's based on jaw strength. I, I don't know what it might be. Clever enough to avoid the net? But 
whether you be barracuda or trout, I know barracuda aren't in a lake, by the way, I know that. They're gars in a lake. Have you ever caught a gar? Nastiest fish in the world. Throw it right back. Teeth, ugly. Ugly, that's an ugly fish, yeah. yeah. There's lots of ugly fish, but that's a particularly ugly fish. But whether you're a gar, a trout, or a guppy, or whatever you are, we're all, you, you end up in the same net. And this is true of the good fish, just like the bad fish, the clean fish, the unclean fish. Would have made a lot of sense to the fishermen in the audience. They've, they've done that. They've pulled, dragged the net up and thrown the eels back and thrown them away. And the, the fish that were able to be eaten would be taken to the market. And again, it's not the point of the story, but I couldn't get it out of my head. It strikes me that there's something true to learn, not only about the way the fish are separated, but by the way the fish feel in the net. All of a sudden, all those things that you would have built well, we're more important, or, or, or this is the hierarchy of the society, they just go away as soon as the net gets you. I was thinking about the kingdom of God as this big net, and, and as, I, as I read the first few verses of Luke, and Paula just read it to us well, it's, it's this verse that seems kind of odd, this passage that seems even a little unimportant. And again, Luke does this a lot, these short transitions that on the surface seem like they're just kind of there to move the story on. They're just kind of there to, to tell you, okay, we're done with this part of the story and on to the next one. And this little passage is a great example of that. But this, this passage demonstrates to us Jesus is not only preaching the kingdom of God, but he's demonstrating the kingdom of God. And the gospels are really about two things. When we read our gospels, there's really two things that these authors want us to know. They want us to know what king jesus is like they want us to know what kind of a man and what kind of a god jesus is they want us to know about his work and what he accomplished on our behalf and and, and what he was sent to accomplish they want us to close their writings and go man i have a really good idea of who Jesus is. But there's this other topic that we talk about less in churches, but that we talk about uh, around here, we talk about it an awful lot. And that is, what does it mean to live in the kingdom of God? If Jesus is our king, and we really are a kingdom submitted to our King Jesus and not to anyone else, well, what does it mean? What kind of a society, what kind of a culture is built? Jesus is king. And of course, we live in this now but not yet part of, of, of human history where in some ways, this kingdom is still future. There will be a time when the kingdom of God is all we see, and it'll be very obvious to us how we live in that kingdom. And yet, it's not all future. Look at us here. What are we doing here on the day after Christmas? This is ridiculous. Unless we are here, submitted to King Jesus, saying, this as we love one another, as we study the scriptures together, as we learn about who Jesus is and what it means to be citizens of his kingdom, this in part is the answer to what is, what is it like in the kingdom of God. Luke has built quite a case for who Jesus is to this point. Um, I won't read you the whole thing because we spent most of last year doing that, but if you'll just, even if you want to just kind of thumb through the last few pages of your Bible, if you're um, in, in Luke 8 and you say, okay, Luke 8 starts with pretty familiar territory this time of year. The birth narratives, Luke 1 and 2, give us the, uh, all, tell us all we need to know about John the baptizer and how he was born and Jesus and how uh, Jesus is 
you know, announced by angels and worshiped by shepherds and magi and tied to Old Testament prophecy and also tied to eschatological future hope. And, and, and we see him at the, at the temple when he's 12 and learn, in fact, that that is his father's house. And, and so just this very strong, Luke, Luke wants us to, to understand how Jesus fits into all of time and history just as he begins to write. Luke 3, uh, Jesus' ministry is preceded by John, and John is ba- Jesus is baptized by John, and we have this announcement. You remember, if you can just play the story out in your head, we remember uh, that, that he is announced as the Christ, behold, the Son of God, and affirmed by the voice from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Luke 4, Jesus does what Adam and none of the rest of us could do in overcoming temptation. He's rejected by his hometown synagogue. You remember this? He begins to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. For the first time, we're seeing what Jesus' message will be as he goes from place to place. And then he begins to demonstrate. Not only does, do other people say that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Messiah, but he starts to demonstrate this in miraculous power. He, he begins a ministry of healing. He is the king of the kingdom that makes the unclean clean, that overcomes illness and begins to be identified as the Son of God. Other people start saying, oh, you, Son of God. Luke 5 through 7, we see him beginning not only to heal, to prove himself powerful, but also to begin to teach. We see the Sermon on the Plain, which we talked about very closely, echoes the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7, and is, you know, Jesus' stump speech. When he went someplace and had an audience, these were the kind of things that he said, and it was all about the kingdom, and it was all about how life in the kingdom, the ethics of the kingdom, are different. It's not an outside-in. It's about what you do and what's legal and what you can get away with, but rather it's about is your heart in the right spot? Is your heart pointed at God? And is there an outworking of this heart that is transformed and this heart that is pointed at, at Jesus, your king, that works itself out in your life. Man, the end of this passage where we just kind of left off a few months ago, we heard the, the parable of the man building his, his house on sand or on a rock. We're told that the best life will be one built on the rock of Jesus' teaching. For the first time, Jesus shows power over death. He raises the widow of Nain's son. Do you remember? Can you see how an argument is being built for who is this man? Who is Jesus? Maybe even more profoundly, even than conquering someone's death, is Jesus, and this gets him in a lot of trouble, begins to forgive sins. Not just in a, I forgive you for what you've done to me, but you are forgiven. Well, who can do that but God alone? Even more than that, chapter 7 leaves us with the parable of the two debtors and gets us thinking about this. Do you remember the parable of the two debtors? Some guy owes one guy a whole bunch of money. Some guy owes him a little less money. And the super rich guy forgives uh, his servant, but he refuses to forgive his servant. You remember this? And it gets us thinking about this idea that either you live as a citizen of the kingdom of God 
or you don't. If you desire and have come to find a Messiah who forgives your sins, well, then you, for, you extend that forgiveness to others too. That we don't get to be the kind of person that says, Jesus, thank you for my sins, but everybody is going to have to earn my favor. But rather, that this is a brand new kind of kingdom, a brand new kind of life, a brand new way to live. Not just that your individual sins are forgiven and then we become the judge and decide to forgive everybody else's individual sins, but rather we live in the kingdom of love and grace where we extend forgiveness and forgiveness is freely given to us. And then this little transitional bit of exposition in Luke chapter 8 begins with this passage that might feel a little dry but is loaded with meaning. It provides us an outline for the next section in Luke and it gives us a glimpse of what it is like in that big net. <laughs> as we, as our hierarchical, I could write that word, I don't know if I could say it. Our power structures, the things that matter in our society that make you big and tough and rich and strong and powerful just no longer matter in the kingdom of God. So soon afterward, it starts, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. I know that doesn't sound like much. I know you already know that Jesus walked around saying stuff. But this, to a first century Jew, is profound because the kingdom is portable and decentralized. And I don't mean to tell you that it is decentralized and that Jesus is not the center of it, but I mean to tell you that for the first time, the idea was that the temple was not the center of it, but rather that the center of the kingdom of God could be wandering around from town to town in Galilee, that it wasn't some place that had to be in Jerusalem with the high and mighty, but rather in these little fishing villages in these in these little farm towns that the actual kingdom of god could step foot in their place and that changes how they thought and it should change how we thought too where is it that the kingdom of god can't be where is it that the kingdom of god shouldn't be um, brought by us saying that jesus you know takes the track of an itinerant preacher is nothing unusual. That's what rabbis did. They walked from town to town teaching. And in one sense, going around preaching about the kingdom of God wasn't that unusual. To Jewish ears, the kingdom of God just meant Israel. We're God's kingdom. We're the, his representatives here on earth. But like in so many other areas, and this is the Sermon on the Mount's full of this, like in so many other areas, Jesus talks like a man of his time, like he uses language and pictures and, and, and things that that society would understand. But he does it in a way that redefines everything for the people that are listening to him. Jesus doesn't just talk about how great the law is and how great the Messiah will be. Instead, he says, the law is fulfilled in me. He doesn't just talk about how atonement is possible through the sacrifices. Instead, he just looks at people and said, you are forgiven. That's not something rabbis did. He doesn't just talk about God's victory over evil, which was a very common topic among the rabbis. Instead, he heals and casts demons out. Oh, God's victorious over evil. You want to see? 
And he casts out demons. He calls disciples. Rabbis do that, but not like Jesus. Following a rabbi was like getting into a good school. You had to apply and prove your worth. And Jesus goes around calling common people, fishermen. Not only that, but there's a guy that just a minute ago worked for Rome among Jesus' disciples. So Jesus does rabbi stuff, but he does it in a way that is totally new, totally different. And I guess the big idea might be that other rabbis taught about God's rule, but Jesus demonstrates God's rule. When we see Jesus active in the New Testament, we're not only listening to what he says to understand the kingdom of God, we're watching what he does as he initiates the kingdom of God. Because this little band of people following Jesus around, submitted to him, obeying him in peace and joy with each other, though they come from all kinds of different walks of life, that is the microcosm of the kingdom of God. When he said the kingdom of God is near, he wasn't just talking about a spiritual reality. And we say that kind of thing all the time, don't we? And I say it all the time from this pulpit, that the kingdom of God is primarily a spiritual reality now, and someday it'll be a physical reality. And yet we're always on our knees saying, may the kingdom be here. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that ultimately our spiritual, the spiritual kingdom of God will give birth to the physical kingdom that will cover the whole earth. But right now, aren't we called to be the picture of that? Shouldn't people see our relationships, our friendships, the way we do things and go, I kind of get what it means. What a society is like if Jesus is the king and people are following him. So we look at this traveling company of Jesus and we get a hint of what the kingdom should be on earth while we wait for the second coming. This, in short, is the first church. You know what they were doing? They were gathering together to follow and worship and obey Jesus. Hey, why are we here? Aren't we here so that we might follow and worship and learn about Jesus? Get to know him better. So as we're looking at this, little short passage, we're also seeing some key features of what the kingdom of God is like. In what ways that big net that drags us in turns over all of the societal structures that we have in a way where we're still us, and yet we're us in a brand new way. It says this, and I realize that this doesn't feel like a lot, but it is profound as the author, as Luke says, and the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. To say that the relationship between men and women in the first century was broken is a catastrophic understatement. You kind of had, and it wasn't, you know, we, we typically, you, you, you remember the most important thing uh, in understanding any biblical passage, say it with me, context, context. And context. And so when we like study what was the relationship of men and women in the in the first century, it's easy to go, I read this one guy, and this is what it was like, but it was people. So it was not broken in one particular way, it was broken in a million ways. Have you learned that about people? So on kind of one hand, 
Um, Israel was a very Hellenistic place. Greek culture had, you know, stretched from Spain to North Africa, and and it, it kind of felt a little country bumpkin without some Greek stuff around. That Athens was the place of the, the great university, you know, the, 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 the great thinkers were Alexandria and, and, and North Africa and Athens and in Greece. And, and if you like talked like those guys and thought like those guys and built buildings like those guys and built towns like those guys, it seemed a little more sophisticated. And with all of that stuff comes the morality of those guys. Over the last couple of generations, the effects of modern life have, ha, had been made available to the people in Israel too. You know, we might look around right now and kind of go, this feels like kind of a low point in, in like sexual morality and like, you know, how people interact and what people feel free to do. This is as bad as it's ever been. No, grab a history book. It's been real bad lots of times. And this might be a real low point the first century in Hellenistic culture. It was pre- it's been pretty low before. Greece and Rome were filthy. We don't have time to go into all the gory details, but in all the ways people can be broken, as men and women relate to each other, they were broken. And it was popular to be broken that way. On the other hand, Israel had... Very religious people, very religious leaders who were hanging on to a completely different idea of how men and women should, react, should interact and that were probably in some ways a reaction to the Hellenistic culture around them. There was this very rigid idea about separation between genders in religious Israel. And again, I would love to, to give you a book report from the pages I read, but we don't have time to go into much detail. But let me surmise to say that it was not uncommon for a religious man to refuse to talk to his wife in public because, after all, men and women should not interact in any ways in the public sphere. So we might think of it like this. Your options were the sexual permissiveness of the street or the legalism of the religious elite? Which one of those do you think is most like the kingdom of God? Those are both pretty bad options, aren't they? When you think about how God creates Adam and Eve in the garden as partners, as co-equal in value, standing side by side to co-bear the image of God, to to be the co-regents of his authority on the earth. And then you find these catastrophically broken ways that people have articulated that through through time. And, And certainly the first century was very broken. Where's the partnership? Where's the male and female relationship reflecting the image of God? Where's the teamwork and equal value of men and women and caring for the earth like God initially planned? It just wasn't there. In place of this co-equal, co-region over God's good earth, there was not only one broken idea about how men and women should relate to each other, but lots of broken ideas. It was hard to figure out. How are we supposed to relate to each other? It's still tough to figure out how we're supposed to relate to each other. In fact, I bet even just if I, as I have said some words, I said the word gender and you guys went, oh no. What are we talking about the rest of the day? It's hard to figure out 
It's hard to know what is the kingdom of God like as men and women relate to each other. And I think one of the reasons it's so difficult is because most of the time we're talking about a distribution of power. Who should be in charge? Who's the boss? Who is it that gets to do what they want? And who had better like be listening? Does that sound even remotely like the kingdom of God to you? And yet, this is the argument of our society just like it was the argument of their society. Let me ask you this. In this little band of people, as Luke describes this, this group of people, who has the power and the authority? Jesus. It's just Jesus, the government. Yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> it's Rome. But in this little band, in this little microcosm of the kingdom of heaven, there's only one source of power. There's only one source of power. There's only one boss in the mix, and it's Jesus. And I wonder if we would just say how revolutionary it is to have the idea that in our marriages, in our societies, in our church, that there is only one boss, and his name is Jesus. That there is one Lord, one King, and if you have a pulse today, what our job is, is together obey, love, serve Him, and be on mission together. Amen. It's tough, these relationships between men and women, because we try to codify the law that always works, right? We try to make a code like, this is the role, and this is the role, and this is all the time, and this is never... Does that sound like the kingdom of God to you when I just say it that way? When really, God uses people in their gifting in lots of ways and frequently in lots of ways that shock religious folks. Is there an amen from the religious folks? <laughs> it's tough because we also, bring, we also bring cultural pieces, historical pieces, into the conversation of how men and women should relate and how families work well and how the church works, works well instead of just looking to the scriptures, instead of just saying we just submit to Jesus. And this, you know, this sermon, I've preached this ser the, a sermon before and, and I'll do it again sometime about male and female roles in the church, but in this passage it is really informative as we just chew on that stuff because we are presented with a church in peace as everyone submits to Jesus. I love the phrase, and also. We are introduced to this band. There's the 12. We've met them before. Dudes, right? Fishermen, tax collector, you know their names. Could you name all 12? Anybody? Help in Awana. You'll learn all 12 of their names before it's over. And then, he, and then the author, Luke, tells us, I've been in 2 Samuel so long, I've got to remember, I can say Luke now, not just the author. Um, uh, but so we're saying, and the 12 and also a group of women. The disciples, included in the disciples, were lots of women. The 12 is a distinction of these 12 men who would be the apostles and would have this special role uh, after the resurrection that would take the, and included one catastrophic failure who betrayed Jesus. Um, but this group of disciples was not the 12 apostles and their little helpers, but it was the 12 apostles and also this group of women. These are the disciples. 
The Bible, <laughs> the Bible continually confirms the distinction of men and women, and it continually confirms their equality, their co-equalness and value. We are, di we are different. We are different from Adam and Eve. We are different, but we are equal in value, in love. My hope for Lighthouse is that we would not let the culture or history define the roles of anybody in the kingdom of God, but rather like the New Testament does. We would affirm the womanhood of women, the manhood of men, and the vital importance of both as the church becomes this little slice of the kingdom of God on earth. Both of us, men and women, marked by service and love, both using gifts. I want you to see the, the hierarchical structure in the kingdom of Jesus. It is Jesus, and then it is us. Jesus is the authority. That doesn't mean that there aren't roles that people are called to. I happen to be called to one of those. I'm a pastor. And yet, if you understand leading a church or being a pastor is anything but service, well, you've messed it up completely. This is what leadership looks like in the church, is service. So I'm not exactly sure how this looks in every situation. Those are much longer than one sermon, but I would love just I would, I would love to see um, you know, our daughters more encouraged to be trained in the Scriptures. Would you not? I'd love for women to feel empowered to use the full range of spiritual gifts that the New Testament outlines that women in the New Testament use. I would love for all of us, male, female, to thrive as we follow Jesus and Jesus alone. This doesn't have to be as complicated as we've made it. You have this band of men and women, all submitted to Jesus and all on mission together. In this big net, relationships are different. We still get to be who we are, but we relate to the way we relate to each other changes a ton. Power structures, traditions, they disappear as we get gathered together in this net that is the kingdom of God. So next, the kingdom redefines status. The, as the, the, some of these women are, are announced to us, we know who they are. It says, Mary called uh, Magdalene, so Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. Now, there's a couple of different ways that these lists of, of names get, how they get organized. There's a couple of different ideas about how they get organized, but one of the main ideas about how lists of names get organized in the, in the Gospels is that the leader, the most important of the group, would be listed first. This is why Peter is typically listed first in lists of disciples, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, it is almost always added, is last on the list. Well, if that's true, Luke has organized this list of women disciples in pretty odd way if we're looking through human eyes. Joanna seems like she would have been a pretty important person. Did you see who Joanna is? She's married to Herod, or she's married to Herod's household manager, like his chief of staff. Like in Herod's, look, Herod doesn't know how his house runs. Cusa does. Herod doesn't know where all the money goes. He just knows he snaps his finger and stuff shows up. Cusa knows where the money comes from and where it goes. He is the household manager of Herod. 
by any standard. Mary from Magdala would have been on the fringes of polite society. We don't know a lot about how her demonic oppression affected her, but any version of that is super brutal. And she is from nowhere, Israel. Magdala is just this little, you know, just one of those little dotted um, fishing villages on the Sea of Galilee. Maybe she was, you know, presented as out of her mind. Maybe she was wandering the streets and, and filthy and maybe homeless like the, the man across the lake in the Gerasenes. You remember that story? So maybe it was like that. Maybe she was a magician or a fortune teller. Maybe she claimed she could talk to the dead, Maybe which would have made her just unclean and, and hated. And I don't doubt that seven is a real number of, of demons, but also when you see the number seven, it always means like complete, right? This is trying to help us understand she was completely controlled. Her life was completely ruined. This poor woman had really, really suffered under the impact of evil. So we could probably, so while we can't infer a lot about Joanna or about Mary, we could certainly say that they are living in two very different strata of society. That if Joanna was living with and still married to the head of Herod Antipas's chief of staff. She would have been the picture of genteel society. Can you imagine her showing up among this band of Galilean fishermen trying to figure out how to live one campsite to the next? She had not done that before. It's much more likely that she hadn't been healed from demons like Mary had, but rather from some kind of infirmity. But whatever it was, she was still married to Cusa and she was following Jesus. Can you imagine a group where these two would hang out? Can you imagine anything that would happen in society where Joanna and Mary Magdalene would be sitting across from each other? I can't think of any place they would ever run into each other much less serve together. And something tells me that Mary was not invited to the palace to serve on the decorating committee. Something tells me she was not, they, they, that Herod was never in a conversation with Cusa and his wife and said, you know whose opinion we need? Go find me a demon-possessed person from in the middle of nowhere. Let's see what she thinks. Something tells me that Mary wouldn't have been invited to plan and run parties around the Jewish festivals and feasts. But those would have been the circles that Joanna just owned. She would have just lived there. And also something tells me that it went the other way too, that Joanna wasn't too familiar with the places that Mary knew well. Way up there on the Sea of Galilee, hanging out with fishermen and shepherds, doing God knows what with who knows what. She wouldn't have been caught dead there. She wouldn't want to be. And here's the big idea that in this big net, look at us all sitting here in this big net. In the church, as we follow Jesus, none of that matters. None of where these people came from defines who they are in the kingdom of God. It's part of their history that God will use in our lives as we serve, but as far as value, as far as usefulness, as far as whether or not we make a difference, we matter to the king. 
It does not matter how you've related to the world in the past or even your current situation in the world, but what matters is how you relate to Jesus right now. Luke gives us a picture where people from all walks of life with all kinds of paths come together and serve side by side, shoulder to shoulder, on a common mission. That's hard for poor folks, it's hard for rich folks, and it's hard for everybody in the middle, isn't it? For us to set that aside and go, in Christ, we're just on mission together. And you can imagine, did you see Luke say, hey, these women provided for the band of, of followers. They, they provided for the traveling company of disciples out of their own means. Do you think it was equal between Mary and Joanna? You think they each did the same things or contributed the same amount? I love the idea that Jesus is funded in part by Herod's household manager. Like, you know, Herod had that money long enough. Let's see what Jesus can do with it, you know? But it's not the same. It's just equal. These women don't stop being who they were. They are just found that all of that stuff that was in their past is not what defines them anymore. But rather, it's being on mission for Jesus. All right. That's very different than the world. It's very different than the world they lived in. And the way we interact should be very different than the world around us too. It's a profound challenge to say that we would not define people by anything except how they relate to Jesus. That we would never look at somebody and size them up with worldly eyes. But rather, we would say, look, Joanna and Mary Magdalene went from stations in life that would have been completely adversarial to sisters that's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Is that we would find ourselves brothers and sisters, no matter where we came from. Lastly, and quickly, the kingdom of God provides a common mission. This is um, the, the, this, the last part of this passage says that these uh, women provided for them. And them might mean him, it might mean they provided for Jesus, or it might mean them that they provided for this traveling company. Either way, the, the function is the same, but they provided for them out of their means. So while it was not, again, this is something that, that wouldn't have seemed that unusual, it was not uncommon for a rabbi to have a, a woman who was a, a patron, you know, somebody who believed in him and thought he did a good job and kind of wrote checks to, to keep him going as he traveled around. And yet these women are not presented as patrons. They're presented as partners. And again, this is so profoundly different in the kingdom of God that we would not see people for what we can get out of them, but we would rather see people as partners in the mission. This is a missional group, and the mission is the gospel. Jesus went around preaching the good news of the rule and the reign of God, and he let a small society of people that lived by that rule. And maybe that's the big idea of the morning and something that we could chew on, that we cannot be the kind of people that proclaim the rule and reign of God and then act like somebody else or something else is our king. We cannot proclaim the rule and reign of Jesus and say, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God and then size either, each other up based on job description, bank account, size, beauty, whatever. That when we say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you, when Jesus says, 
Man, you have to deny yourself and follow me. Part of that self-denial is us giving up judging each other based on any of the things that the whole rest of the world would judge each other on. But rather, we would say, what defines me is Jesus. And what defines us is the mission that Jesus has called us to. I guess my prayer for us is that like this little church following Jesus, that this little church following Jesus would be like that. That we would be a place where people are seen not by all of the ways that the rest of the world would see them, but rather where we would join and say the most, thing, the most important thing about anybody in this room is the mission we're on together. And the mission is the gospel. And the gospel is what defines us and the gospel is what what motivates us. It is the love and the rule and the reign of Jesus that is our mission, that we would say it and that we too would demonstrate it. Our job is to prayerfully walk in the same mission that these folks did. So the question is how do men and women relate to each other in light of the kingdom of God in 2021? Man, almost 2022, yeah. How do we view status and gifting? Well, as we dig into what it means to be in the kingdom of God over the next, over Luke 8 and 9, Luke wants to start us before any other details are are given with this idea that man, woman, rich or poor, it starts with following Jesus and Jesus alone. And I'm going to be praying, and I'll pray for us now, that we would be people that do not define each other or our mission or our value based on anything except Jesus and Jesus alone. 